I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. My guest today is Musa Algarbi. He's a researcher at Heterodox Academy, he's a PhD student in sociology at Columbia. And he's a writer whose work has not only been featured on our blog, but also in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and several other venues. The topics of his research range from terrorism to war to anti-racism, and more recently, he's been writing about U.S. political elections. You can find out more about him at his website, musaalgarbi.com. That's M-U-S-A-A-L-G-H-A-R-B-I. Com. So here is Musa Algarbi. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. On previous episodes, I've interviewed professors pretty much uniformly, and you're the first student to be in the interviewee's chair on the show. And I'm curious, tell me a bit about how you, um, as a graduate student, decided to join Heterodox Academy. I had a kind of an unusual journey. I mean, uh, in academia in general, but uh, maybe to Heterodox Academy as well. So I started in community college, and um, a lot of the sorts of concerns that we deal with at Heterodox Academy weren't such a big deal there. I mean, a lot of times at community colleges, you have much more diverse um, student bodies, even sort of racially and ethnically, but definitely in terms of like socioeconomic status and political orientation and stuff. But then uh, when I went to University of Arizona, um, which is where I got my bachelor's and my master's degree, I noticed a big shift um, pretty immediately, and it was mainly just that, um, you know, you would see almost all of the professors were clearly aligned with the left, and to the extent that they talked about sort of non-left, leftist views at all, um, a lot of it, a lot of the talk was very sort of uncharitable, um, but usually just sort of excluded other frameworks that were not affiliated with the left to begin with. Um, but, but that was even, uh, while that, while I found that disturbing and, uh, uh, irksome uh, often, um, because I myself come from a conservative community and family. So I was like, I'm very, uh, familiar with conservative thought. And I know that conservatives have a lot to add to, uh, many of these conversations. And, uh, I felt like more diverse input would have uh, enriched and enlivened a lot of these conversations. But still, I mean, when I would hear things on the news about like safe spaces and trigger warnings and microaggressions and, uh, and, and the like, I always thought that that was like, I didn't think that any of that stuff was real or particularly salient to anyone's university experience. I thought it was just, you know, people on the right blowing stuff out of proportion or whatever. But then when I got to Columbia, uh, <laughs> I saw that um, you got there for your PhD, correct? For my PhD now in sociology, yeah. And that was just a, a totally different climate. I mean, I think that the sort of uh, elite East Coast sort of schools maybe have a private schools as compared to public schools. I mean, maybe there's just sort of a d- different culture or a set of challenges or, or something. But uh, um, I quickly came to see that. Uh, so not only was there the sort of lack of conservative perspectives that you saw that I saw even at my previous university, but there is this real kind of hostility in, in some senses to 
to, you know, even, even considering other views. Um, and, uh, and just this sort of really reactionary sort of politics associated with a lot of uh, identity issues that I found disturbing. So, th- so that and you're talking about pr- both both professors and students at Columbia, and are, and you're are you interacting with people outside the social department? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, the way our program is structured, it's it's um, very it encourages interdisciplinarity. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I uh, and but yeah, I mean uh, professors and, and students, and even I mean even when you first arrive. Um, like there's this sort of administrative culture too that like uh, that seems to push uh, very hard on 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 some of these sort of identity uh, frameworks. Okay, so was it during your first year that you decided to join Heterodox Academy? Yeah, I mean, I had um, I'd been familiar with uh, with Height's work and with the the Heterodox Academy initiative when I was at University of Arizona. In fact, I remember uh, we we talked about it a little bit. Um, when I was at Emory once, uh, but uh, but I saw John at an event at Columbia University. Uh, Christina Hoff Summers was speaking, and I saw him come in, and I just was like, "Oh my God, you're John Height!" <laughs> and we just started talking about about you know uh, life and my sort of background and what I was studying, and and I have my own sort of interesting experience with uh, sort of viewpoint diversity and having it uh, sort of. Uh, suppressed or challenged and so as we were talking uh he decided that uh he, he said why don't you come down to nyu you know we're uh we're just getting this heterodox academy thing going uh, i think you might have some interesting contributions to make so that's how i started getting affiliated with heterodox academy and around the time you joined you wrote a blog post i think pretty soon after you joined wrote this blog post about freedom of speech and liberties in general being really important for disadvantaged groups as opposed to advantage groups, I think the context of this was that people around the time were saying, well, freedom of speech is just a way for powerful people to oppress powerless people. And you said just the opposite is true. And I happen to agree because I'm from a foreign country and I feel like immigrants in general come here, even though they're going to be in a minority here because they feel like their rights are going to be protected. But how were you inspired to write that piece? I mean, first, these a lot of the protections and norms around freedom of, ex- of speech and freedom of expression were explicitly created to protect people who hold left, left-leaning views after the McCarthy inquisitions and to protect and empower minorities as a result of activism during the civil rights and black power movement. So these are, are, are rules and policies that were literally created for us. I mean, if you are already in the dominant party, then you don't need things to protect your ability to express yourself because chances are you're the ones with a platform to begin with. Um, so, so there's that sort of, there's a sort of historical element to these laws that they're designed to protect people on the left and minorities. But more than that, I mean, just like looking at contemporary dynamics, if you look at sort of where, where, where professors are, are likely to be, um, minority professors and women are um, disproportionately likely to be sort of lower on the tenure track or non-tenured. Like women are much more likely um, to be sort of uh, contingent or adjunct faculty and men are much more likely to be tenured or, or tenure track faculty. Um, uh, professors of color are much more likely to teach at sort of uh, state schools or uh, community colleges. So, so colleges that are, that don't have the same sorts of, 
robust insulation that, say, a school like Columbia has, so they're sort of more vulnerable to outside groups. Um, so if, if Fox News or, or someone like that wants to launch a campaign against a school like University of Arizona, a professor that teaches there is going to be much more vulnerable than a professor teaching at Columbia who, who gets attacked by Fox News, for instance. Um, because at state schools, you're being paid for with taxpayer dollars, so there's this whole case to, to, that, to be made where constituents are like, this is where my tax money is going to, to uh, you know, um, hire someone who's teaching my children this. And you can't really make the, the case the same way at Columbia because they're not receiving taxpayer funding. So they're, so they're just less vulnerable to pressure from outsider groups. Um, so that's one way in which people who are from minority, but, and then even students, like minority students, are much more likely, again, to be, te- to be going to um, land-grant uh, state universities or community colleges as, as opposed to sort of elite private institutions. Um, so, uh, so that's one sense. P- uh, both professors and students uh, who are from disadvantaged groups are much more likely to be going to institutions where they're more, more vulnerable um, to assaults for outside groups um, for their views. And progressives are, are, are more likely to be the ones to be targeted for their views for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is that conservatives on campus are, are somewhat rare. They tend to be politically moderate. And so the, whereas, uh, so, the, so you, you don't get like professors who are extreme right in the university too often the way you would have professors who are extreme left in the university. And um, additionally, the public in general is just far to the right of your average university faculty member or even your average university student. Um, The public is a lot more conservative than the academy is. So even if you have, so they're just less likely to be outraged by something that a conservative professor would say, even bracketing the, the fact that they're moderate anyway, so they're not likely to say something super extreme. But even if they did some, say something that was like far to the right of, of university um, norms and it made university people angry, the public would be much less likely to be outraged about that as compared to something that a, a professor on the left might say. Um, so, so there's a sense in which progressives are also more vulnerable to being targeted by these sorts of campaigns um, to purge professors than, than someone on the right would be. So on the blog post, it's been at least two years since you published that post now. Uh, what kind of uh, reception did that get? I mean, did other students in your department read that post? Yeah, um, it was warmly received by, uh, by the faculty and students at Columbia that read it. Um, in fact, uh, at the time that I published that, in the Atlantic, I was uh, I was taking this class on race and inequality, and um, and so most of the I would say most of the, the students who were in that class were predisposed to think of a lot of a lot of the sort of protections for freedom of conscience and freedom of expression as as again sort of defending people like Richard Spencer and Milo instead of people like Lisa Durden. And I feel like at least for the, the students who, who were in that class and who, were, who I was able to discuss this with or, or the students uh, who emailed me afterwards to say, oh, I saw this and um, it was uh, provocative, great thoughts, and, you know, uh, things like this. I think I was able to help move the meter at least a little bit to introduce um, some more uh, sort of complexity of around that issue. But, um, but the problem is, is it's just, you know, I, I, my impression is that the, 
the sort of starting position for most students today is who haven't like really, um, who haven't really done a lot of, of like hard contemplation on this issue or done like a lot of reading on the history of, of how these rights emerged and why. Um, I think the sort of reflexive uh, position that a lot of them might take is, is one towards being skeptical of these rights and, and protections. And, and in fact, there's uh, this case um, recently of the Drexel University professor, uh, George Chikarella Maher, where uh, he was kind of fired but not fired for, uh, for, for basically saying there was some kind of a link between um, sort of white supremacist views and mass, mass shootings. Uh, so this is a, a position that's not even like crazy or like out there. I mean, this is a position that's widely held uh, among the left and it's a position that many academics have taken sort of on the record. Um, but uh, what's striking about, about the case of Chikarala Maher is that he, he himself was at, at various points very uh, skeptical of sort of freedom of speech and freedom of conscience protections and himself had called for other professors to be sort of punished or terminated even for, for things that they said that he thought were sort of insufficiently progressive. Um, but then after he was um, put on indefinite leave from Drexel University, he went on social media and, uh, you know, really um, went to the mat saying like, it's super important for, for, for professors and uh, to rally around protecting freedom of conscience and freedom of expression, especially for non-tenured faculty and, and for students. Um, and that's admirable, but I, you know, it's a shame that it had to, uh, had to get to that point for, for Maher himself to sort of, um, come around to championing this view. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, it's, it won't be the case that other progressive students have to sort of deal with the uh, Fox news and Breitbart and things like that before they understand why this stuff is important because it's them They're Again, they're the ones who, who, who are designed to protect. Yeah, I think there is definitely this uh, a historical sense in the university where people really just aren't familiar what happened prior to the McCarthy era, and uh, it's it's interesting if you read about philosophy, for example, Bertrand Russell, I believe, was fired from Cooney or almost fired from Cooney. I think he was actually fired because a parent of a student opposed his uh, ethical position on on the morality of sex or something like that. Um, and he was, you know, that was at a point where Bertrand Russell was pretty well known, but that was in the thirties and he lost his job. If I recall that incident correctly. Um, and I think one reason people sometimes miss this issue too, if you look at the constitution and the bill of rights, one thing I really like how the bill of rights are framed is they're not framed directly about rights that the people have, but about rights that Congress doesn't have. So Congress does not have the right to pass legislation obstructing your freedom of speech. And if we think about the university, instead of asking ourselves, does Milo have the right to speak at your university? If you ask yourself, does your university have the right to ban speakers or censor speech? Then you realize if they do, then they have the right to censor your speech. So if you cede that right, you're losing that right. That is a pretty uh, awesome insight. I might gank that from you, or maybe we can write something together about it. Thank you. I am actually working on a short piece about that right now. I don't know when, it, when I'm going to publish it. Um, but another issue, so you're, you're working on this piece right now. Unlike your blog post, it's not yet published. 
but you're working on a piece about how the lack of engagement with a right is a problem for progressive scholars who are actually trying to change societies to be more equitable or more just. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So there's this real irony where, I mean, most people who who become social researchers uh, do so because they don't just want to understand social problems. They want to help mitigate them in some way. I mean, and this goes back to the the founding of a lot of social research fields, like the field of sociology was created in many respects as a handmaid to the progressive sort of reform movement, um, you know, uh, championed by people like FDR, actually both of the Roosevelt's. But, uh, but there, there's this sort of tension where uh, we have this hunger to sort of leverage social research into social change. But this, in order to do that, we have to be able to talk to people who don't necessarily share our views. So for instance, um, I mentioned earlier that most of the public is far to the right of, of uh, most university professors. I mean, like, for instance, in, in the social sciences, uh, according to some uh, measures, um, progressive social scientists outnumber conservatives something like 10 to 1 uh, in, in many social research fields. But in the general population, conservatives uh, outnumber people who identify as progressives. Um, by a very, by, by more than like a, not quite, you know, not quite sort of two to one, but it's something like a, there's like 50%, take the number of progressives and add 50% to that. And that's how many conservatives there are or something like that. But it, it's, a, it's like, a, there are substantially more people who identify as conservative than progressive in the general population. And of course, this large sort of um, band who, who, who doesn't necessarily um, associate as either. Um, and so if, you, if you're in a democratic society, and you want to have concern, but you're not able to talk to anyone who's not a progressive, then you're just not going to be able to move the public. I mean, you're going to be able to move maybe 20% of the public or 30% of the public tops, but that's likely not going to be enough to do any kind of substantial social change. Or if you look to the policymakers front, say, okay, well, we won't try to move the public. We'll just try to engage with policymakers. Well, the problem with that right now is that Republicans control um, the, uh, the large majority of governorships and state legislatures, if you look at state government level, if you look at the federal government level, Republicans control both chambers of Congress and the White House. Um, you know, the, the current Republican president has appointed a number of conservative judges. Um, so, so uh, and, and even sort of, even under the circumstance where, say the pendulum swings the other way and you have sort of an Obama 2008 sort of situation, even then you still have to um, be able to engage with Republicans to uh, sort of execute the social policies you wanted as Obama himself discovered um, throughout his administration. Uh, so, so, you know, um, and then, and that's just for social change in the United States. Uh but then if you talk about, you know, people who want to go abroad and work for, uh, you know, NGOs or, or, uh, or work with foreign governments and sort of developing countries to address various social problems. I mean, there uh, to say that most of the population is not progressive is, is an understatement. I mean, like, uh, I mean, the, like it's not even on our sort of normal left, left to right scale, but uh, suffice it to say, if you go to, you know, um, sub-Saharan Africa and you want to talk to people about the performativity of race or something like that, I mean, like, they just don't want to hear it. It's just not relevant to their lives in any sort of accessible way. Um, so, 
so there's this real problem where in order to move the meter um, on a lot of the social issues that progressives want to address, they just need to be able to engage with a, a far uh, larger band of people than we're training them to engage with. I mean, even from the religious standpoint, right? Like most Americans are religious. Most people, especially outside of the United States, if, again, if you're talking about um, in developing nations and stuff, are, are, are even more religious, religious in a different way. Um, than sort of Western Europeans and Americans uh, often are. Um, and we, we're, we're just fundamentally not training social researchers to be able to sort of speak in a religious language or, or even feel comfortable engaging with religious people or, or, or uh, sort of narratives or frames of reference. I feel like uh, one good development when it comes to political psychology now, political psychology research focusing on value change and communicating is we are we're starting to get some better insight with empirical research on how starting with the other person's fundamental values and going from there. So for example, if you're talking about environmentalism and climate change, starting if you're a liberal, starting with the idea that conservatives value purity, and you talk about the purity or sanctity of the earth that is our home, and you start from there and you talk about environmentalism, you're more likely to, to get a response than if you uh, start from start by talking about how corporations put profits over people, which is another way of framing the issue. Yeah. And in fact, the environmental case I find so fascinating because for a long time, actually conservatives and the Republican party, which, you know, they were not always synonymous, but, but both conservatives and the Republican party uh, at, at different points actually um, championed environmental issues. I mean, the national parks were created under uh sort of Teddy Roosevelt, the Environmental Protection Agency was signed into law by Richard Nixon. Uh, conservatives and Christians have long felt that it was their sort of moral Christian responsibility to be good stewards of the earth and to be grateful and show gratitude for the for the earth that, that was given unto us by God. And so, you know, you would, um, there's this whole conservation movement and environmentalist movement. In fact, there's this great research by Dan Cahan on this issue. And like one, one thing that it seems like happened was that as the left uh, became uh, like really sort of leaned into environmentalism during the like late '60s, uh, early '70s, and like leaned into environmentalism in a in a much more uh, aggressive way, you know, with the with you know the especially like with the hippies and the tree huggers, and then like, like the sort of eco radicals and stuff. Um, it seems like what happened with a lot of people on the right is they started to associate like if this is what environmentalism is is like these people, then I'm not one of those people. Um, and so there is this sort of like interesting sort of identity dimension to a lot of these issues that um, if you can sort of get at it from the identity uh, side, then a lot of these problems become much more tractable because it's not, again, it's not that sort of conservatives fundamentally hate the environment or want to destroy the planet or they don't care about anything but money or like you know, any of those sorts of rhetorics, those are just not true of most conservatives. Um, it's that they don't, uh, yeah, it's that there, there, there are all these other sort of supervening things that would prevent them from endorsing environmental uh, causes. You've got another paper coming out on affirmative action. I did a little bit of research on that myself about five years ago, um, although I ended up using the data for something different. But tell me a bit about your take on affirmative action. Yeah, so what I'm... Uh, as you know, Americans have uh, sort of consistently and very strongly resisted affirmative action from, I mean, basically since it's been on the table, uh, polls have sort of overwhelmingly showed American hostility 
um, towards uh, race-based, uh, group-based affirmative action. And so I, I, I wanted to figure out why. Um, so there are sort of three very prominent narratives about why this is. So one of them uh, is a sort of principled opposition hypothesis, which is basically the idea that the reason Americans resist affirmative action is because they just sort of fundamentally disagree with these sorts of redistributive schemes. Um, and then you have this economic anxiety hypothesis, which is that like in principle, Americans don't have a problem with affirmative action. It, uh, it's just that especially white Americans are concerned that in a, in a market where ceteris paribus sort of uh, minorities are preferred over them, um, that they or their loved ones or their family or, or whatever will lose out in that kind of a market. So that's why they resist it. It's not on principle. It's not because they uh, have any kind of antithesis toward, uh, antipathy towards minorities. It's just that they have economic concerns of their own. And then there's the sort of racial tension hypothesis, which is holds basically that, you know, it's not that um, Americans have a principled opposition to affirmative action. It's not even so much the sort of economic anxiety that's driving it. It's just that a lot of people who oppose affirmative action oppose uh, minorities benefiting from these sorts of programs. Or, uh, so, for instance, they might support affirmative action for women, uh, but not for blacks or something along those lines. So it's like a racial thing that's uh, driving it. Um, so in order to sort of test these hypotheses, I developed scales corresponding to each of these um, hypotheses uh, in the most recent uh, 2016 general social survey. And I um, uh, ran a series of regressions on different um, variables related to affirmative action to see which one of the hypotheses seemed to explain the most uh, of the variance in public attitudes as reflected in the R squared of the regressions. Um, and then what I found uh, consistently is that actually principled opposition explained the most, uh, followed by racial tension, although followed by, uh, followed by racial tension, like a substantial degree less. And then, um, economic anxiety. How is principled opposition measured? Yeah. So the sorts of variables I use for, uh, principled opposition, um, tested public attitudes just in general about, uh, whether the, it, it was the government's job to, uh, solve social problems or uh, whether it's the government's job to rectify inequality or whether it's the government's job to, um, or, or whether sort of differences um, is uh, inequality the result of hard work or, or, or uh, I mean, do people get ahead by sort of hard work or luck or things like this? So uh, things to sort of get at sort of how people understood what the role of, of uh, to understand sort of, how people think inequality happens uh, and uh, sort of what sort of normative valence they attach to, to, to these inequalities. But it wasn't, but none of the variables made any kind of reference to race or, or anything like that. Um, or even, or even the poor, because uh, there is this problem where I tested uh, that most Americans in, in my uh, sample robustly associated um, sort of blackness with poverty so I, I uh, avoided any variables that directly reference poverty because they, out of concern that it, they might read sort of when they read poor, they might sort of maybe read black or something like that. So in order to control for that, I avoided um, any direct references to, quote, the poor.
Okay. Yeah, what I found when I was researching affirmative action is now at the policy level, there are a few people working on educational policy, well, primarily Richard Collenberg, who've been trying to push affirmative action in a more class-oriented direction. And I was trying to tease out whether support for race-based affirmative action differs substantially from support for class-based. And I found that there's a, a pretty strong correlation between the two. I mean, you might think that people who are white and who have a strong sense of white racial identity would say, well, I do want poor white people to be helped. They might have a substantially different view. But in, in fact, it does seem like there's this, uh, like you say, principled opposition. In your case, I think you're finding that the, some people, as a matter of principle, don't feel like the government should be involved with engineering society. And I think another issue is that uh, some people just feel like we should live in a meritocracy and we do live to some to a pretty large degree in a meritocracy. So if people are hierarchically hierarchically arranged in society, there's probably a merit based explanation for that. I think. Yeah. In fact, uh, so one one thing I did is I also tested um, gender, like uh, because they had a couple variables that were related to gender based affirmative action, and I found that this there was virtually no sentiment, uh, no no difference even among. Uh, white respondents, uh, you could look at white respondents, men, white respondents, women. Um, and there was virtually no difference between um, attitudes about gender-based affirmative action as compared to race-based affirmative action, uh, except for there was a variant of the question which asked um, about uh, looking harder to find, uh, should companies sort of look harder to find qualified women? It added the word qualified uh, women. Um, and when they just added the word qualified there and they emphasized the qualified nature of the candidates, um, actually the, the dynamics flipped. So then there was actually strong support for affirmative action, um, for women when they emphasized that the women were qualified, but the, unfortunately in the GSS, there isn't any variable that asks about race-based affirmative action that emphasizes that the, the, the sort of minority candidates are qualified, um, but I suspect that if they did have a question which uh, emphasized that they were qualified candidates, that um, maybe the public opinion would be softer. So again, I think um, what it seems is that there's this real concern that uh, about undeserving people, like people who ha- who haven't sort of who haven't who who on sort of merit merit grounds wouldn't deserve the job, getting the job. Um, that seems to be one of the big drivers. Well. I haven't looked up Colin Berg's research recently, and it would be interesting to see where he's going with the class-based research, and maybe he's found some factors. Maybe other researchers have found some factors that if you put them into the equation, you can tease out support for race-based versus gender-based versus other things. But I'd love to talk about other topics, but it looks like we've reached uh, the half-hour mark. So any closing thoughts? No, I guess uh, I guess not. It was a great conversation. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll have a chance to talk some more down the line. I hope so too. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me again.